Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, I'll talk about the Geminid meteor shower and we'll also take a look at the constellation of Gemini itself. Lastly, as always, there's the news, a roundup of planetary events and this episode's trivia question. You can go outside on any night and if you're lucky, you might see a shooting star. But there are some times throughout the year when you are likely to see more than usual, and December is just one of those times. The Gemini meteor shower reaches its maximum on December the 13th. They're named after the constellation of Gemini, the twins, as the shooting stars appear to originate from that area of the sky. Luckily for us, this is one of the better meteor showers. They're reasonably bright and relatively slow moving, which means they're easier to see than some of the fainter and faster showers. The shower can also produce a high number of shooting stars. On average, under ideal conditions, it can produce about 120 meteors an hour, or roughly two a minute. But before you get too excited, there are of course two or three things you should be aware of. Firstly, what's the definition of ideal conditions? Well, for starters you'll probably only see 120 meteors an hour if the constellation of Gemini is directly overhead and the skies are pretty clear. The good news is that, unlike a lot of the constellations associated with meteor showers, Gemini will be at its highest around 2 o'clock in the morning. This is good, because most of the constellations associated with meteor showers won't be at their highest until around dawn, when the skies are obviously a lot brighter. If you can't be outside at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'll be pleased to know that Gemini currently rises just a few hours after sunset and is visible throughout the night. Secondly, you'll want to get as far as you can from the lights of any towns or cities. As with almost everything in astronomy, the darker your skies, the better your chances of being able to see whatever it is that you want to see. Thirdly, assuming you're outside at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're under those clear dark skies every astronomer dreams of, there's one big hindrance to this year's shower, the moon. Unfortunately, the moon turns full on the 12th, and you can probably guess which constellation it will be passing through when the meteor shower is at its best. That's right, Gemini. This means its light will brighten the sky quite a bit, making all but the brightest meteors difficult to see. Then why bother? Well, for starters, you might still catch a few shining stars. Besides that, the shower is famous for producing fireballs. These meteors are super bright and can outshine the planet Venus, making them easy to see even in moonlight. So regardless of where you are or when you are observing, take a few moments to stop and stare at the stars. You can't catch a falling star, it would probably burn through your pocket anyway, but they're still pretty cool to look at. First evidence of a giant planet orbiting a dead white dwarf star has been found in the form of a disk of gas formed from its evaporating atmosphere. The Neptune-like planet orbits a star a quarter of its size about once every 10 days, leaving a comet-like tail of gas comprised of hydrogen, oxygen and sulfur in its wake. It is the first evidence of a giant planet orbiting a white dwarf star and suggests that there could be many more planets around such stars waiting to be discovered. In space, black holes appear in different sizes and masses. The record is now held by a specimen in the Able 85 cluster of galaxies where an ultra-massive black hole with 40 billion times the mass of our Sun sits in the middle of the cluster's central galaxy. The galaxy cluster contains about 500 galaxies and lies about 700 million light-years away, 
twice the distance for previous direct black hole mass measurements. The central galaxy itself has a visible mass of about 2 trillion suns. Saturn's icy moon Enceladus is of great interest to scientists due to its subsurface ocean, making it a prime target for those searching for life elsewhere. The research has revealed the physics governing the fissures through which ocean water erupts from the moon's icy surface, giving its south pole an unusual tiger stripe appearance. According to lead researcher Doug Hemingway, the stripes are parallel and evenly spaced, about 130 km long and 35 km apart. What makes them especially interesting is that they're continually erupting with water ice. No other icy planets or moons have anything quite like them. Enceladus experiences internal heating due to the eccentricity of its orbit. It's sometimes a little closer to Saturn and sometimes a little farther out, which causes the moon to be slightly deformed, stretched and relaxed, as it responds to a giant planet's gravity. It's this process that keeps the moon from freezing completely solid. The moon's poles experience the greatest effects of this gravitationally induced deformation, so the ice sheet is thinnest over them. During periods of gradual cooling on Enceladus, some of the moon's subsurface ocean will freeze. Because water expands as, as it freezes, as the icy crust thickens from below, the pressure in the underlying ocean increases until the ice shelf eventually splits open, creating a fissure. Because of the comparatively thin ice, the poles are the most susceptible to cracks. The researchers revealed that the fissures make up Enceladus's tiger stripes could have formed on either pole, the south just happened to be split open first. Lastly, scientists like to think of themselves as being enlightened, but when it comes to prejudice, too many are still in the dark ages. That's the sobering implication of a new study showing that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer-questioning, pansexual, asexual, and or non-binary women and gender minorities experience a more hostile workplace climate in astronomy and planetary science compared to cisgender straight women. In a survey of workplace experiences over the preceding five years among astronomers and planetary scientists, 21% of sexual minority women and gender minorities reported experiencing physical harassment, more than twice the incidence for cisgender straight women which at 9% is already quite alarming. Similarly, 47% of sexual minority women and gender minorities experience verbal sexual harassment compared to 40% of cisgender straight women and just 3% of cisgender men. And whereas 62% of cisgender male respondents indicated that they had heard sexual comments from their peers at work, the same was true for 78% of cisgender straight women and for 81% of sexual minority women and gender minorities. The new paper makes numerous specific recommendations on steps that organizations and their leaders can take to reduce incidences of harassment. Among them are to prioritize the physical, sexual and psychological safety of all workers, to develop a code of conduct for appropriate professional behavior, to ensure equal access to bathroom facilities for people of all genders, to provide sensitivity and bystander intervention training, and to swiftly, justly and consistently sanction transgressions of behavior. Jupiter is now lost within the glare of the sun, but will return to the morning sky around mid-January. In the meantime, you can still see its gas giant sibling, Saturn, in the early evening twilight. It's not at its best or brightest, but you might want to take this opportunity to see the planet while you can. Venus, the brightest of all the planets, is close by on the 11th. The pair will easily fit within the same field of view when observed with binoculars, 
but unless you're using a very low magnification of about 25 times, you won't be able to see them together through a telescope. The pair can be seen over the southwestern horizon. Venus looks like a brilliant white star, while Saturn is a much fainter yellowish star to its upper right. Both will set about two hours after the Sun on the 11th, but will drift apart over the coming days. Uranus and Neptune are still fairly well placed for observation, but Neptune is beginning to lose its luster. The distant blue planet is due south and at its highest, at around 6pm, it sets at around 11.30pm. Uranus continues to fare a little better. It's due south at 9pm and sets at about 3.30am. Mars rises about an hour later and is a relatively faint, poppery star in the pre-dawn twilight. It's now moving through the constellation on Libra, the scales. It's very close to Alpha Libri on the 11th and 12th. An easy double star for binoculars, both planet and star should easily fit within any binoculars field of view. As for Mercury, the smallest planet rises at about 90 minutes before the Sun. Observers in the United States may see it among the stars of Scorpius to Scorpion in the pre-dawn sky. Unfortunately, since the constellation never rises very high for observers in the northern hemisphere, you won't have long to see it before the encroaching sunlight swallows it. Look for a pinkish-white star low over the southeastern horizon from about 45 minutes before sunrise. The moon has a busy 10 days ahead of it, during which time it will pass by three bright stars. The first encounter is over Andabaran, the star that represents the red eye of Taurus de Bull on the 11th. It will turn full on the 12th, and then, five days later, the waning gibbous moon appears close to Regulus, the brightest star in Leo the Lion, in the pre-dawn sky of the 17th. It reaches last quarter on the 19th and continues to shine in the morning sky. It can be seen approaching Speaker, the brightest star in Virgo, the Virgin, that same day, and passes the star on the 20th and 21st. So as I mentioned earlier, the Gemini meteor showers are at their maximum on the 13th. The meteors appear to radiate out from the constellation Gemini, hence the shower's name. But what does the constellation represent? And what can you see there? Well, for starters, as most people know, the constellation of Gemini is also known as the Twins. According to Greek legend, these twins were named Castor and Pollux. For those of you in the United Kingdom, that's Pollux with a P as in Peter, not B as in Brian. If you're in North America, the comment probably won't make much sense to you. Despite being twins and being born of the same mother, Castor and Pollux had different fathers. According to some legends, they were born of an egg, making the whole situation even stranger. But then the Greek legends often read like the kind of dream you might have after consuming a considerable quantity of cheese before bedtime. The mother was Leda, Queen of Sparta. Castor was the mortal son of Tyndareus, the king of Sparta, but Pollux was the immortal son of the god Zeus. The gods seduced Leda while in the form of a swan, which is more than a little bit weird. Like I said, cheese before bedtime. If you're at all familiar with Zeus, this is probably not going to come as any surprise to you, as Zeus is well known for his amorous adventures. In fact, you could probably make an HBO show of Zeus's conquests and I'm sure it would gain a pretty large and loyal audience. We do, after all, need a replacement for Game of Thrones. It's said the twins were inseparable. Both were excellent horsemen and sailors, and joined Jason on his famous quest for the Golden Fleece. Beyond that, they rescued their sister, Helen of Troy, but instigated some family feuds of their own by carrying on with the women betrothed to their cousins. The feud, and the twins' adventures, came to an end during an attempt by Castor and Pollux to steal cattle from their cousins. Castor was fatally wounded during the raid, 
causing Zeus to intervene on behalf of Pollux, his son. Pollux was distraught at the sight of his brother dying, and so Zeus gave them both immortality by placing them among the stars. As a result, you can see the twins together in the night sky. Castor, despite having the designation of Alpha Geminorum, is the second brightest star in the constellation, while Pollux, also known as Beta Geminorum, is the brighter of the pair. Pollux is a fairly unremarkable star. An orange giant is just 34 light years away and is relatively bright and appears close to Castor in the sky, but otherwise there's not much to see there. Castor, however, is a popular multiple star that can be easily split with a small telescope, if you crank up the magnification a bit. It's possible that I'll split the star 70 times, but if I have, it's been a tight split. A magnification of about 90 times will give you a clear split, but realistically you'll probably need to hit 100 or higher. Appropriately, like Castor and Pollux themselves, you'll see a pair of white stars of almost identical brightness. In fact, there are a total of 6 stars in the system, but unless you have some serious professional equipment, or possibly some serious eyesight issues, you won't be seeing the other stars. Fortunately, looking further afield, there's plenty more to see within the constellation. Down by Castor's feet, you can find the open star cluster Messier 35. If you have good eyesight and those magical cleared out skies I've heard so much about, you may be able to spot the cluster with just your eyes. If not, even low power binoculars should reveal it. I was easily able to see it with a small set of 8x35 binoculars. It appeared as a faint grey misty patch of uniform brightness and seemed to have an hourglass shape. A low power telescopic view of about 30 times is fine, but for me the best views came at around 50 times. As that magnification, the cluster appeared to fit nicely within the field of view, with hundreds of stars being visible. If you have a small telescope, there's another site that should be within your grasp. The Eskimo, or Clown Face Nebula, is a planetary nebula and one of the brightest of its kind. If you're not familiar with these objects, a planetary nebula is the shell of gas thrown off by a dying star. As the star dies, it literally convulses and sheds its outer layers, and these layers can be easily seen as planetary nebulae. But why call them planetary nebulae? The term was coined by William Herschel, the discoverer of the planet Uranus, who likened their appearance through a telescope to that of a planet, hence planetary nebulae. You should be able to see the Eskimo nebula at a relatively low magnification. At about 35 times, it appears as a tiny, concentrated, fuzzy, star-like patch with a bluish tint to it. You should also see an orange star nearby, which provides a nice color contrast and appears as a sharp point of light compared to the nebula's apparent fuzziness. At about 100 times, there's no mistake in the nebula. It has a bright center, but otherwise its light is evenly distributed across its surface. It's named the Eskimo or Clown Face Nebula because in photographs on larger telescopes, it appears to have the shape of a face. The bright central region is the clown's large nose, but there's also a circle that surrounds the nebula, like a hood that keeps the Eskimo warm. Gemini is easily seen throughout the winter months and well into spring, so you have plenty of time to enjoy the constellation. I've described two of its treasures, but scan the area with binoculars or a small telescope. What else do you see? trivia time again, so we have another question from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book. As always, you can buy it on Amazon by going to tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the UK and tinyurl.com 
forward slash rjbamazon-us in the US. So here's the question. What role did the god Pluto have in Greek mythology? Was it A. The bringer of death B. The god of money and material possessions C. The god of the ocean or D. The god of the underworld As always, you'll hear some pretty music for a moment and then I'll come back with the answer. Welcome back. The answer to the trivia question is D, the god of the underworld, and not a cartoon dog from Disney. Discovered in 1930, the dwarf's planet name was suggested by an 11-year-old girl, Venetia Burney. A little over 40 years earlier, her great-uncle, Henry Maiden, had named the two moons of Mars. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, and I hope you did, Please subscribe to them and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com snspod. That's tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. Again, if you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the US and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the UK. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you.